We are continuing this morning with our study through the pastoral letters, and today we are in 1 Timothy 6, verse 11 through 16. Paul is moving toward the finish of this letter that he wrote to Timothy, a letter that was meant to encourage him, to instruct him as he pastored the church in Ephesus. Timothy is in Ephesus to address people, some of whom who were leaders, who were teaching strange doctrines. Uh, these are not just things that Christians may have some disagreement on but don't really affect the gospel message. Instead, these were teachings that if followed could lead people to actually deny and move away from the Christian faith. Paul began this letter with very specific warnings in this matter. I'm going to remind you of a few of them. In verses 3 and 4 of the first chapter, he says, As I urge you to upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to further speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Down in verse 6 and 7, we see that they strayed away from a sincere faith and instead moved to what he describes as fruitless discussion. They want to be seen as teachers of the law, but they show they don't even understand the law themselves. At the end of the chapter, Paul refers to two men specifically who had made shipwreck of their faith in this regard, Alexander and Hymenaeus. In chapter 4, Paul warned about asceticism, which he described as the doctrine of demons. Asceticism assumes that if you practice extreme self-denial and reject the good gifts of God, then you're being holy. Instead, Paul describes these people as hypocrites and gives warnings about them. Last week, we looked at 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 10. And there, Paul spoke about people who advocated doctrines that were not gospel-centered. He said these people were conceited. They were causing all kinds of conflict in the church. They were using their religious ideas as ways of making money, a way of getting rich. So Paul reminds him that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And he says we must fight this by pursuing contentment. This is contentment in regard to material things regarding money, as well as contentment in God's providential circumstances, his providential work in our life. Paul knows that really holding the line on these things is going to be a huge challenge for Timothy. Timothy's got to go up against people who are well entrenched in this church. He's going to be challenging their doctrine. He's going to be challenging the way they were living. He's going to be calling them to repentance. It was going to be a hard fight. It was going to be difficult. So that gives us the, the context to the verses that we're looking at this morning. So let's read 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 16. But flee from these things, you men of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the, who is the blessed and only sovereign, 
the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. These verses are clearly a challenge and an encouragement to Timothy in his own life and ministry. But as we look at what Paul has to say, we're going to use this challenge to Timothy as a challenge to ourselves as well. So first we'll, we'll look at verses 11 to 12, and we'll look at the challenge that is given to believers and how to live out uh, the faith. Second in verses 13 and the first part of 15, we'll see this, a solemn charge that Paul gives to highlight God's presence and enable us to do what he has called us to do. And then thirdly, and uh, the last part of verse 15 and verse 16, we'll consider a doxology that actually honors the blessed and only sovereign king who is in fact our king as Christians. So, first main point is this. In contrast to the sinful discontent of others, believers are strongly challenged regarding the way they live out the Christian life. The first word in verse 11 is but. So Paul is clearly making a contrast with these people who were proud, people who were denying sound doctrine, people who were making faith, uh, using faith as like a money-making scheme. He was telling Timothy, and he's telling us, that we must not follow those examples. We must not let those temptations get hold of us. We must not let ourselves be ruled by discontent with the gospel, by discontent with God and his ways. So in verses 11 and 12, Paul gives four commands to make sure that Timothy, and we as well, will be on the right road as far as our Christian faith is concerned. The first command is this, flee from these things, you man of God. So in light of the transforming work God has done in their life, believers are commanded to flee from sin. The command to flee from these, uh, the, that's what the command is, to flee from these things. Now, before we get to that particular command, notice how Paul described Timothy. He described him as a man of God. In the Old Testament, this was a designation for someone who was a prophet. He was one to whom God had revealed special messages, and the prophet then shared those words from God with the people. In the Old Testament, Moses is called a man of God. Samuel, David, Elijah, Elisha, a number of prophets were described, using this same terminology, as one who was a man of God. And it makes sense that Paul would use this designation for Timothy because he was actually representing the apostle in his ministry in the church there in Ephesus. And Paul wanted to remind him of the position that God had placed him in while also encouraging him that God would enable him to do all that he had, had been called to do. Nobody here has been called by God to be a prophet who receives special revelation from God and then delivers that to other people. Nobody here has been called to do that. But though we are not technically what would be called a man of God, if you're a believer, you are most definitely a child of God. He has saved you by his grace. He has forgiven you of all your sins. 
He has made you righteous in Christ. He has specially adopted you into the household of God. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He is actively causing everything in your life to work together for good because you've been called according to his purpose. God has thoroughly transformed the life of every Christian. And that reality gives impetus then to every one of these commands from God, realizing who we are, therefore we can rightly hear these commands and, and, and respond to them. So in the first command, Paul is saying, but you must not act the same way that these pseudo-believers were acting. You must not reject the Christ-centered gospel. You must not let pride overtake you. You must not go after money and be discontent with what God has given you. Well, why? Because of who you are, because you're a child of God. So whatever your name might be, whatever family you come from, whatever language you speak, whatever color your skin might be, whatever your background might be, your fundamental identity as a Christian is that you are a child of God. And because of who we are, what should we do in regard to sin? We're supposed to flee from it. The idea of fleeing speaks of seeing, recognizing something that is dangerous, something that is terribly wrong, and you have to get away as fast as you can. So we're to run away from false teaching and not dabble in it. We're to run away from pride and conceit. We're to run away from the love of money. Those things are dangerous. They're not the kind of things that the children of God should allow in their lives. Well, the next command tells us that as we run away from one thing, at the same time, we're pursuing something different. So, again, at verse 11, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. So, next thing we see is this. In conjunction with fleeing from sin, believers must actively pursue Christian virtues. Paul identifies here six Christian virtues in particular, and they're probably best understood in pairs. And as you can probably imagine, there's a lot of overlap between these virtues that are there. First, as we flee from sin, we pursue instead righteousness and godliness. These terms sum up really the, the horizontal and, then, and, and the vertical aspects of the Christian life. Righteousness especially speaks to how we interact with other people, doing the right thing, treating each other in the right way, being fair and right. Godliness speaks of the fact that we strive to please God in everything that we do. It's like, the, like Paul says, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. That's the kind of godliness that he's talking about. Those are the things that we're supposed to pursue. The second pair is faith and love. These are really the two ultimate Christian values. We live our lives by faith in Jesus Christ. We know we're his people. We know that he's our God. Love speaks of doing all that we do, first out of love for God, but it also reminds us that we're required to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So these are things that as Christians we are to can actively pursue. The third pairing is perseverance and gentleness. These are helpful in life. They're also helpful in ministry. 
Perseverance, or your version might use the word steadfastness, speaks of the fact that believers press on in their faith regardless of what the circumstances are, regardless of what the opposition is. You persevere. You press on. Gentleness speaks of the need for self-control. It might even be defined as meekness in your, in your Bible. It can also be said that it's strength under control. There's so many things that can throw us off course in life, situations that can be really hard, people that rub us the wrong way. So since we are children of God, we not only flee from sin, but we also actively pursue Christian virtues. Now, the third and fourth commands that Paul gives are in verse 12. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So here we're reminded next that this is a truly difficult contest, but believers must be prepared to fight this good fight. <coughs> the command to fight the good fight of faith is taken is an imagery taken from an athletic contest and uh, with uh, involving intense competition. Uh, Paul is especially making reference based on the word that he's used. He's making reference to the ancient Greek games here, and he speaks here of this being a good fight or a good contest. So what he what he's saying here is what is what is at stake. In the instructions, the teaching that he's given, what is at stake here is far superior to what's at stake in an athletic contest of strength and skill. This is a fight of faith. The context here is of those who had made shipwreck of their faith because they had compromised their doctrine. They had allowed pride to take over. They had allowed a love of money to lead to all sorts of evil. There's always going to be things in life that will tempt us to slack off in our walk with the Lord. There will always be things that discourage us so much that we just feel like giving up. But this is a fight we must not run away from because this is the good fight, the good fight of faith. Well, the next command ties into this because the next command speaks of the prize of that intense conflict, that intense contest. Because Paul says, take hold of, that's the fourth command here. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, Timothy already has eternal life. Paul speaks of the good confession that Timothy made of his faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And we know from verses like Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So because we're all sinners... We all deserve eternal death, eternal destruction, judgment. Our only hope is to escape this condemnation is faith in Jesus Christ. Timothy had placed his faith in Christ, so he had not eternal death. He already had eternal life. So what does Paul mean when he says, take hold of eternal life? Well, I think what he's speaking of is grasp the reality of what you have the truth that you already have eternal life. It's already been given to you in Christ. And the fact that we have eternal life is the reason we can know that we can fight the good fight of faith and win. 
So we fight that good fight by taking hold of the eternal life that we already have. As believers, it's a life that we have in fullness. Jesus called it an abundant life. And that is a life that we will enjoy for eternity. So eternal life then gives us the confidence in the here and now to flee from sin, to pursue Christian virtues, to fight that good fight of faith. We are going the opposite direction of those who are not holding on to the gospel. Paul also reminds Timothy that he had made the good confession of his faith and his commitment to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. He didn't just believe in his heart and then kind of keep it to himself. He confessed his faith before others. Paul talked about the importance of this confession. This is over in Romans 10, 9 and 10, another well-known passage. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a man believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So our open confession that Jesus is Lord, that he is our Lord, is an important part of our salvation. Well, then we see that Paul wants to give further help for this really difficult contest. So look at verses 13 to, uh, into, into verse 15. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. So our second main point is this, to further help in the good fight, Paul gives a solemn charge that is a reminder of God's special presence with his people. So Timothy, we are told, had made the confession of his faith of Jesus Christ in the presence of many witnesses. I mean, there's something of an accountability there that pleases God. So it's, so it's as Timothy is one who has admitted, who has confessed to being a Christian man, in that sense, as he's fighting the good fight of faith. But the presence of other people is not the most important thing that should motivate Timothy. It's the presence of God. It's the presence of his Savior. So all that Timothy and all other believers do is done ultimately to please God, not to please people. So we need to remember that every aspect of our lives all day long is lived before the face of God. So here's how Paul elaborates on that reality. First thing he says is this. Believers can fight the good fight knowing that they do so in the presence of God who both gives and preserves life. In verse 13, Paul speaks of God the Father as the one who gives life to all things. Now, it's kind of interesting to think of all the things that Paul could have said about God. Why did he pick that one? He's the one who gives life to all things. Well, there's probably several reasons. One is it's a reminder that every one of us live, move, breathe, have our very existence because God is the one who gives us that life. I mean, every aspect, every detail of the life that we live is made possible because God is giving us that life. It's not made possible because you did your exercises yesterday. 
It's possible because God is giving us that life. And we can trust him to sustain us through hard situations. Another aspect to consider is that sometimes the good fight is made more difficult by people. That was certainly true in Timothy's situation. It may be in yours as well. Those people who are making life difficult are people who are alive at God's good pleasure. They are in our lives for a reason. But even more importantly here, God is the one who gives us eternal life, that same eternal life that Paul said we're to take hold of. So if you're a Christian, it's because God has given you eternal life through Christ. He will see to it that even when your physical life comes to an end, eternal life continues. And there's a great encouragement in that to persevere in our faith to the very end, even of our physical life, whenever that may come. Well, then Paul continues this really a solemn charge with this next point. Believers can fight the good fight because they do so in the presence of Christ Jesus, who modeled this fight himself. Verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. So Paul not only charges Timothy in the presence of God, but also in the presence of Christ Jesus, in the presence of the Messiah. He reminds Timothy and reminds us that our Savior also gave testimony. And it culminated in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, where he was sentenced to be crucified. But Jesus had been making the good confession really all of his life. He had confessed that he was the Son of God. He had confessed that he was, in fact, the promised Messiah. He confessed that he came into this world to serve. He confessed that he would be crucified as a substitute for sinners. He confessed that he would be raised from the dead. He confessed that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one would come to the Father apart from him. He confessed that he would never leave or forsake us. And it was because of Christ's good confession that the religious leaders were mad. It was because of his good confession that they made good on their threat to have him put to death. Jesus knew very well that he would be scourged. He knew very well that he would be crucified. That was something else he confessed to his disciples. But he held firm to his good confession to the very end, regardless of what it cost him. As we read in Hebrews, it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And he sat down now at the right hand of the throne of God. So Paul charges Timothy and us to fight the good fight of faith, to take hold of the eternal life to which we've been called, to hold fast to our good confession in the presence of Christ Jesus. So we're supposed to remember his example of staying faithful in spite of the opposition that was against him. One commentator I saw as I was looking at this, he says this, he said, it's Christ's confession that animates all other confessions. It's Christ's confession that animates all other confessions. So he modeled the fight for us, and he enables us also to be faithful in our fight to the end. Then Paul has a further explanation of what maintaining this good confession entails. 
So our next point, we see this. With this encouragement, believers commit themselves to fight the good fight as faithful servants of the Lord Jesus Christ who will come again at the proper time. Look again at verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. So he says, he's telling us there to keep this commandment without stain or reproach. First question is, what commandment? What commandment is he talking about here? Well, probably it's what's been summed up in what Paul has just said. Flee from sin. Pursue godly living. Fight the good fight of faith. Stay true to the gospel. Stay stay true to your gospel confession of faith in Jesus Christ. And for Timothy, it would include staying true to the task that he had been given as the pastor there in Ephesus. Now, that last exhortation, of course, would be have special application to Timothy. But the rest of those things apply to every believer. And Paul gives several descriptive phrases to further describe this fight that we're all supposed to fight. Verse 14, he says, keep the commandment without stain or reproach. Without stain speaks of being spotless. Without reproach means that there's no reason you should be rebuked for something. So, you've made a good confession of faith in Christ. You've been given commands on how to live out this faith. The true biblical gospel is true and good in itself, but we can live in ways that are inconsistent with what it, with what it means to be a child of God. Our words or our actions can lead someone else to think badly of the gospel. We don't want to live in such a way that people reject the good news of salvation because of what they see in us. So in other words, Paul is saying another, in another way what he's already said several times in this letter, our faith and our life need to match up. It's just another way of, say, of emphasizing that point. Then Paul reminds us that as Christians, we have Jesus Christ as our Lord. And he says we should live without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes it clear we don't know when Christ will return. It'll be, he says, it's the proper time, and God is the one who determines what that proper time is. But with the eye of faith, we know that one day we will stand before our Lord and Savior. And what we want more than anything else is to hear him say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. So Paul lays out clear commands on how believers are to live out their faith. It's a good fight in which we must persevere. And he reinforces that by giving us a solemn charge in all that we do, that all that we do is done in the presence of God the Father and in the presence of Christ Jesus our Lord. Then Paul concludes this particular paragraph with a doxology that gives us even more encouragement in this fight. So, verse 15 and 16 talks about he who will bring this about at the proper time. He's speaking there of God the Father. And now that causes him to think more about who he's talking about here. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality 
and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. So our last main point is this. The good fight that every believer must fight can be approached with confidence because it's done to the honor of the happy and only sovereign. The happy and only sovereign. Paul begins his doxology by referring to the Lord as the blessed and only sovereign. John Piper points out the word blessed can be translated as happy. And that's important to understand because it makes all the difference in the world if the God we are seeking to please with our life is happy. How is it that God can be described as happy? Well, there's a number of things. First, because of his own infinite worth and, per and perfection. In our church's confession of faith, this is how we describe God. There is but one living and true God, the creator, preserver, and ruler of all things, having in and of himself all perfections, being infinite in them all, and to him all creatures owe the highest love, reverence, and obedience. If you have all perfections, and if you are infinite in them all, then you are perfectly blessed. There is not a single thing in God that would cause him to have the slightest disappointment in himself. The God that we love and revere and obey is perfectly happy. A second aspect of God's uh, happiness that we can see and uh, pointed out in the scripture is his pleasure, is God the Father's pleasure in God the Son. There are several times in the Gospels where we see God the Father speak from heaven and say that Jesus Christ was his beloved son in whom he was well pleased. God the Father takes infinite pleasure in his son. That's another reason that he's the happy and only sovereign. Well, this passage here in 1 Timothy gives us several other reasons for the blessedness of God. So let's look at those. First one is this. God's blessedness is stressed in that he's the only sovereign. It's interesting that Paul doesn't merely speak of God as being sovereign. He points out that he's the only sovereign. Now, if you think about this, this is kind of like the Department of Redundancy Department. I mean, it, because if you're the sovereign then that just kind of assumes there's no others. But Paul wants to make clear that the one true God has no true competitors. Oh, there's, oh, there's, there's people for sure who doubt and deny his existence. There are many who purposefully reject him, many who willfully disobey him. But in reality, he has no true competitors. He is the only sovereign because only he is all-powerful and if you're the only sovereign then you're blessed you are happy because you're able to do all of your holy perfect will second we see that God's blessedness is emphasized by the fact that he is the king over all other kings and the Lord over all other lords back in first Timothy 2 
Paul talked about the need to pray for kings and all who were in authority. Well, the very fact that we're to pray to the one true God for those kings and those in authority shows that he's sovereign over those kings and those in authority. And in this verse here, we are pointedly told that the blessed and only sovereign is the king over all kings. And then the first two verses in chapter 6, Paul addressed those who were under the yoke of slavery. And as we noted, anywhere from a half to two-thirds of the Roman Empire were slaves. So that makes reasonable makes it reasonable to assume that a large percentage, maybe even most of the members of the Ephesian church, were slaves themselves who served particular masters or lords. Here Paul makes it clear that the blessed and only sovereign is Lord over all lords. So there are no kings, there are no lords who are able to challenge the one true God, to challenge his power, to challenge his freedom, to act as he pleases. That's another reason God is happy. Third, we're told that God's blessedness is highlighted by the fact that all other beings depend on him, depend on him for their existence. It says he alone possesses immortality. All angels are going to live forever. All human beings are going to live forever in some capacity. But only the one true God is truly immortal, who has no beginning as well as no end. Only God is truly eternal. All other beings depend on his creative power to live, to move, to have their very existence. As Paul said back in verse 13, he's the one who gives life to all things. That means that all beings depend on God for their existence. That also means that he depends on no one or nothing for his existence. So there is no one, no king, no lord who has the power to keep God from doing what he's purposed to do. No, he doesn't depend on anyone. Everything depends on him. Another reason that he's the blessed and only sovereign. Fourth, we see that God's blessedness is seen in his own inherent glorious perfection. It says he dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. Unapproachable light would speak of his holiness, probably more specifically would say it would speak of his glory. God's glory is the sum total of all that he is. Every, every attribute, every character, uh, just every aspect of who he is, that's his glory. No man can see his glory and live. I mean, it says, our, I mean, our finite bodies, our imperfect minds, our sinful souls, simply cannot exist in the manifested glorious perfection of God, except for one thing, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's by the salvation work that Jesus Christ has accomplished for sinners that we can be in God's glorious presence. And that is the reason that it's so vital that the biblical gospel not be changed, not be diluted in any way. Jesus Christ is truly our only hope. So in God's inherent glorious perfection, he's perfectly happy. And it's through Christ 
that we can enjoy him. One last point. It is this blessed God who enables his people to fight the good fight and whom they are privileged to honor eternally. Paul closed this doxology by saying, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen, or let it be so, may it be so. God has given us the privilege to honor the blessed God. He has saved us through Jesus Christ. He enables us to fight the fight, to fight the good fight of faith. And the fact that our God is perfectly happy means that we can enjoy him and serve him with joy. I want to share a brief quote here from Jonathan Edwards. And he has many quotes that are similar to the one I'm going to read to you. Um, This is truly a mind-boggling quote. And it's basically, if you've never heard these things before, hopefully take the rest of the afternoon to think about it. Here's what he says. God is the most God-centered being in the universe. He is consumed with love for himself and has infinite admiration for his own beauty. This passionate desire to be joyfully celebrated is the reason you and I exist. The reason why we think about God and tell others what we've thought is so that all of us might relish the very idea of him and rejoice that so great a God is actually ours. Our God is the happy and only sovereign, and we honor him as we fight the good fight of faith in Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the exhortations that were given to Timothy exhortations that we can apply to ourselves as well. Thank you for these reminders, these challenges of things that are just inherently part of who we are as Christians. Yes, we need to flee from sin. Yes, we need to pursue Christian virtue. Yes, we need to fight the good fight that is ours, and we do it all knowing that we do all that we do in your presence. And we do all this knowing that we can honor and rejoice in you, and we thank you that you help us in every aspect of what our fight entails. Lord, I do ask for your encouragement. Paul is is writing this not just to inform, but you can tell he's writing it to encourage. We need to know what's right and wrong. We need to know what the truth is. But we also need things that encourage us and motivate us in doing these things and pleasing you. So thank you for scriptures of this, uh, like this. Lord, help us to continue to grow. Help us to continue to fight in ways that honor you. If you're one who's never put your faith in Jesus Christ, a prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner. I realize that I do not measure up at all in the way I've lived my life. But I thank you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like me. And I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. I want to commit my life to him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note on your tear-off, or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of